Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Our first homework will be to make sure with him that we are indeed You know, um, I'm going to write him an email as soon as we finish this podcast. And I've been racking my brain. And just to give everybody who's listening a background, I asked Michael Morewood if he would give me an invitation to Daramut Amuraku. And he did. And I got an email from Amuraku today saying that he would be happy to talk with us about coming and and uh, i bet doing a webinar with us and we'll have to work out the details because he lives in dublin and i really think that what the way that we should do this is that ordinary life should pay to um, fly you and me to dublin to do some on-site research. Reconnaissance. <laughs> Make and sure the grass really is green and the sheep really are woolly. I, I can attest to that. I have been there before. <laughs> I can attest to that. But um, I, I just think that we, I love, I love Ireland and we've been to Dublin. It's an exciting place. So I'd love to be able to do that sometime. Yeah, I agree. I think that would be a fantastic mission. I bet we could convince him that that's so. <laughs> <laughs> more optimistic than I am. But it would be fun. Yeah, it sure would. So what I was going to say is that I, 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 I've been racking my brain trying to remember how I found out about him in the first place. My hunch is that I probably read something in one of Richard Rohr's daily meditations that quoted him. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'd like to follow up on that. So I looked him up in Amazon and got one of his books and that was it. I think I've read six of his books now. Yeah. yeah. And um, I'm reading a new book, new to me, um, which I want to, let people who listen to this podcast know about because they're going to hear about it in the the days to come. Um, the book is, I'm trying to, I haven't found out anything about the author yet. The book is called Zero Theology. Zero Theology. Escaping Belief Through Catch-22. And it's by John Tucker. Uh, you know the catch-22. Yes. Yeah. Why don't okay. you explain it in case there are those listening who don't know what a catch-22 Well, Yossarian, who is in a book by Joseph Heller, is a pilot, and he wants to get out of flying missions. And you can get out of flying missions if you prove you're crazy. Mm-hmm. And so um, he goes to the doctor and says, 
I don't want to fly missions anymore. I'm terrified of flying missions. Mm -hmm. And the doctor says, that's very reasonable. That means you're not crazy. Any sane person would be afraid of flying missions. So you have to fly missions. And it's the catch 22. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so sort of things are so interesting. That's the name of his novel, right? And um, yeah, it's it does kind of feel like that is applicable in some ways because when we are backed against a wall, not wanting to do something that's perfectly reasonable to not want to do, but but in order to not do it, we might be crazy. Um, feels a little bit like where we are, you know, like there isn't, there are no good solutions, for example, I don't feel like I have a good solution about sending my kids back to school or not. I feel like I just have a practical one, you know, with the one that sort of mm -hmm. feels the most practical to us or to this whole time that we are in, um, sort of makes me think of the catch 22. I'm crazy to keep them home. I'm crazy to keep kissing them back to school. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, um, John Tower uh, Turner um, Tucker, I mean, <laughs> says he 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 alludes to some things that um, Carl Jung would say, and that is mm -hmm. that that um, tell me how you pray, and I will tell you your theology. Yeah. John Tucker says that if you pray to a God out there, you don't have a God here. Yeah. Have, have you ever heard people say, um, well, Jesus either is who he says he is or he was a madman? Mm -hmm. What do you think of that when people say that? I, I, yeah. Well, they're trying to use uh, some way for Jesus to authenticate himself as the Savior, as the Messiah, right. which mm -hmm. Jesus never saw himself as, at least that's mm -hmm. certainly my firm opinion, mm -hmm. as a progressive believer in Jesus. It's like those people who quote a passage from Timothy about how, how valid the scripture is, the whole mm -hmm. Bible. And you can't use a verse within the Bible to prove the validity of the whole Bible because Timothy <laughs> didn't know about the whole Bible when he wrote that verse. So that's right. another thing that John Tucker would use as a catch-22. Right. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. He has I mean, some brilliant is... stuff in this book. It's just really, really good. It's so liberating. Huh. Um, the, the, the first step on the spiritual, on an authentic spiritual path is not to take it. <laughs> not to take the first path. I think, and I have not the finished the book. I have not yeah. finished the book, but I will have to say that so far he has been a person who has best put non-duality into language that I have read. It's mm -hmm. really, he's really good. Hard to do because of the metaphorical nature of language and that we use it to talk about things literally. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a metaphor. Yeah. All of well, this, this whole idea of Jesus not either being a bad man or believing that he is who he says he is, um, is such a finite way of experiencing Jesus, in my opinion. You know, um, 
yeah, it's such a finite way of experiencing Jesus. And I think that it limits our imagination around the process of transformation um, or what Amiraku might say is becoming the disciple coming of age, becoming personally responsible for mm-hmm. um, our faith, the way we walk it. Um, and then I get into even the word faith, right? Uh, and I think Michael Morwood phrases this so well, is what is it that you say you have faith in? Mm-hmm. You know, that everything is on the table when we begin to think about non-duality and cosmic reality and evolutionary theology. What, what John Tucker is trying to get people to do is to step completely outside of the belief paradigm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You recommend this book? I do highly recommend this book, even though I haven't finished reading it. And you, you, you need to know you need kind of a strong theological, spiritual stomach to read it because he's going to challenge a lot of your assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I even uh, have, he's demolished some of the things that I have used in my own teaching, mm. uh, which has been kind of interesting. I've used the illustration of the five blind men feeling the elephant ah. before uh-huh. uh, each one had a different part of the elephant. And it's only when they could put all five of their perspectives together that they could begin to understand what the elephant was. Right. The assumption there is that there's an elephant to feel in the first place. Ah, that is very Buddhist too, right? It's a very, there's no elephant in right. the room, right? There's no non-reality, right? We, you are no being. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So another illustration he uses is that when um, when glass was invented, it was purely decorative and uh, functional in the sense of making vases and jewelry and that sort of thing until they people who did glass got to the point that they could put it in windows and what they created was um, uh, the glass that you see in cathedrals, mm. you know, it's colored glass. It's, it, they didn't it can make it into pictures. It wasn't until people be, were able to create clear glass in contradistinction to what we call stained glass, mm-hmm. that windows became functional as things to look through. Mm-hmm. So that you can have a window that you could look through to the outside world. Up until then, windows had been things that people told stories by. They were parables. Right. And um, what Tucker is saying is that because of the Enlightenment, we started teaching treating religious teachings as things that could be seen clearly through plain glass. Mm. But the religious teachings, particularly of Jesus and Buddha and the prophets and other saints and sages, were never to be seen as anything other than parabolic, as things that pointed to a mystery and not pointed to something that you could believe in. Mm-hmm. And very early, uh, the Christian religion, uh, because of Constantine and other factors, became things that people believed in, and the church was a an enforcer 
um, of those beliefs. And so when the church says, do you have faith in, for example, the virgin birth or the literal nature of the Bible, the true believer is supposed to say yes, but really what you're having faith in is the truth of what the church has told you about those things, right. not those things themselves. Right. And to have a vital religious experience, you need to get out of the belief paradigm. Now, I'm not sure this is where we intended for this podcast to go. Here we are, though. <laughs> so here we are. But I, I, I want to tell people who are listening to it that we have made an adjustment in the Jackie Lewis schedule, mm -hmm. which I think I feel very good about. Yeah. I think it's good. It'll be because online we'll have a little more stamina for two hours on Saturday mm -hmm. from 930 to 1130. And, and then, yeah. And then one hour the next day in ordinary life from 945 yeah. to 1045. And I feel very good about that. I, th I think that since people aren't paying for this, mm -hmm. they can't be disappointed. That's right. <laughs> they won't be asking for their money back. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things were coming up for me as you were talking though. Um, this idea of non-being, which is um, a very Eastern idea, right? Um, and getting belief out of the equation, but just being into the equation. Uh, I, I told you that I have finished reading finally um, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a point where he, he talks about the arrival into the concentration camp for the first time. And what he realizes that is that every prisoner who maybe had already been affected by programs or who had been ghettoized by uh, the Nazi regime, prior to the concentration camp, tried to bring something with them. So they tried to bring some relic of old life into this new unknown with them. And when in the concentration camp, the very first thing that happened to them was that they were stripped of their clothing, which meant stripped of anything that they tried to carry with them. Their heads were shaved where their faces were shaved. And he writes about standing in that naked beingness that all they had was their naked bodies. And for him, that was the beginning of what he thought meaning of the meaning, this new meaning of life was, was do I find meaning in my naked being, which is both literal for him as well as metaphorical. You know, I told you that that book was the first required text reading for me when I entered clinical training in 1966. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then later, and I am embarrassed to tell you, I cannot remember the man's name that I studied with. Mm. Right. I studied with a man who was from Texas mm -hmm. to whom Frankel literally handed him mm. his teaching legacy and said, I want you to carry this legacy on the United States. And he handed part of it to a woman from Germany mm -hmm. as well. 
His logotherapy idea. His logotherapy yeah. work mm -hmm. to continue the teaching. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting because the man with whom I studied later, mm -hmm. the Frankel material, was in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was very striking that he had derived such great meaning in his own life and obviously overcome a serious physical impairment. And he told us that what Frankel's wife had sewn into the lining of his coat was the first manuscript, first draft of that manuscript. Yeah. He begged the Nazis not to take yeah. it. They took it away from him and burned it. Yeah. Yeah, he writes about that in the book. And it may very well be that this man in the wheelchair from Texas is in the afterword to his book because he writes about a man in a wheelchair who finds meaning in his life despite losing even the functioning of his body. And, that could be him. Yeah, and the logotherapy, I mean, just to frame it for those who might be listening and not know what it is, is um, as I understand it, and you could probably round this out a lot better, is less about looking backward to understand pathology, to understand neuroses, than it is about um, looking right now and finding purpose, imagining yourself forward. So imagining transforming forward rather than looking backward. Right. Um, and I just thought, you know, <laughs> I love the question, what is it that life expects from us? Not what do we expect from life, but what is it that life expects from us? What do you think? Hmm. You know, the first word that comes to mind is participation. Mm -hmm. And participation is not a value. It's not, it's good, it's bad, it's joyful, it's despairing. It's, it's just being present to what is and fully participating mm -hmm. in it. So my answer to that is compassion. Mm -hmm. That what life expects from us is that we live compassionately yeah and i'll be interested to see and by the way i'll let people know i i've manipulated it deliberately so that holly hudley and jackie lewis will be in conversation on saturday i'm really looking forward to that yeah because you two both of you are women both of you are in, in, in interracial marriages and as i've said i'm not sure what jackie's parental status is but i know um because i've said to you directly you and i have been co-teaching long enough that i read the fear in you about our current circumstances as far as your children are concerned and i know you they mean the world to you. And it, and we live in really, really scary times, not only for your children, but for your gorgeous husband as well. Mm, he is gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. The scary times. Yeah, you know, it's so, and I was remarking to you on that, you know, holding um, fear and joy in the same breath, right? Because the, the very thing you're afraid of losing or you're afraid of being harmed by the world is the very thing that brings me the most joy, that brings me the most heart warmth, 
um, that has the most meaning in my life and for whom one would say I would proverbially 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 I can't say that uh, stand in front of a bus for you know mm-hmm. and um, you know any of us who have been in relationship uh, have been parents know that vulnerability the vulnerability or the fear of loss and for certain in this particular time and this is not the first time that the public has felt this kind of fear specifically I want to say um, African Americans in this country are long familiar with a certain kind of fear. I think it was James Baldwin who said um, any black person who is relatively conscious in America has a certain kind of anger or fear alive in them. Mm -hmm. I'm not quoting exactly, but it is something to that effect. Um, And this time is heightening some of that. Um, Feel the vulnerability of that kind of love. Feel the vulnerability of, of what it means So I want to speak broadly to that, to even invite ourselves into full compassion and um, accountability. And what I want to say is deeper than allies, but accomplices, co-conspirators. If we really truly see ourselves about equity, about inclusion, and that we are willing to lay our lives on the line for that, we're all vulnerable to that feeling. Mm -hmm. We're all vulnerable to that feeling of what if it doesn't work? And I think for me, maybe the slight difference is, is that I don't see that I have a choice anymore. And maybe before Josh and I created the family we created together, I still had some idea that it was a choice. Mm. You don't have a choice. Mm-mm. I don't. I don't think any of us do, but we operate as if we did. If we look away, we're making a choice about how we want to engage with that vulnerability. But looking toward our vulnerability, I think is, so, so maybe the choice is we can either lean into our vulnerability or we can lean away from it, but it's still there. You know, the vulnerability of compassion is, is huge. I had a man ask me today if I could give him a history or an explanation as to how it was that people who claim to believe in Jesus can at the same time participate in such structures of evil and oppression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that academically I could do that. Mm. But the structural blindness or ego blindness that the system creates in people in any culture, but particularly right now in ours, um, Mm -hmm. is kind of frightening. Yeah, it goes back to that question of like, is, um, is Jesus for me? Or am I about Jesus? And that reframes Viktor Frankl's question in a different way. What does life expect from us rather than what do we expect from life? Yeah. You know, one makes us the center of the narrative, the other decenters, the individual decenters uh, my personal 
salvation and puts it on a lateral platform with everybody else's, I think. The whole and the part, so important to feel ourselves as individuals who recognize ourselves as individuals and um, as part, but a part can never be disconnected from something else. You know, a screw doesn't work unless it's screwed into something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a hammer doesn't work unless it's used as a hammer. So it is, um, you know, um, I want to get at a point I want to make and talk to you about by mm -hmm. beginning by saying how much I love and appreciate you and the fact that we have been doing this co-teaching March, April, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, <laughs> eight months, almost eight almost. months. Yeah. We had no idea. We had no idea. And I uh, couldn't do it without you. Mm. It is my honor and privilege. It really is. So I miss the way that things were. I miss mm, particularly sure. the ability to touch people. The mm -hmm. light banter and joking and banality, if you will, that preceded mm -hmm. and followed um, ordinary life on Sunday and the worship liturgies that I would participate in in the cathedral. I really miss that. And yeah. I miss, I have a point I'm getting to, mm -hmm. getting to. Um, <laughs> I, I, I miss the immediacy. Yeah, And that's one of the reasons I'm grateful that we live stream because I have been given the assignment of preaching on uh, the Sunday, not the Sunday right before the election, but the Sunday before that. Two weeks from Two now. Two weeks from now. Or a week and a half. Yeah. And um, if the polls are correct, and I'm not taking, I'm trying my best not to be partisan here, but if the polls are correct, we're going to have mm -hmm. a change of administration. And if the law enforcement agencies and the sociologists are correct, mm -hmm. if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win on November 3rd, and it's overwhelming, it's clear. Between November 3rd and Inauguration Day, I think we can expect chaos in this country. That's my fear. Yeah. It is a real possibility. I think it's more of a likelihood than not, if I read things correctly. Yeah. Now. Yeah. If you were preaching that Sunday. <laughs> One, would you speak to this situation? And if so, what would you say? And if not, why not? You're asking I'm me asking you. As, okay. I would speak to it. Um, for certain, I'm human and I have my own views politically. Um, and it is really challenging as a teacher of any sort to leave yourself behind we know as psychologists, we really never can. We're always projecting 
ourselves into the situation. And even in scientific research, the human is still there, right? The human is still in the room despite the method of objectivity. So on the one hand, I think it's impossible to remain entirely objective. And I think if we try to remain entirely objective about something that so clearly demands of us a position, we're being complicit or we're being, we're in denial. Uh, we're in denial first and foremost of our humanity. And I think I'm just arriving at a place in my life where maybe I feel like that humanity is too important to leave behind. Um, the human element, right? What is the human element? My son asked me that question not too long ago. I may have told you that when I was putting him to bed. And in fact, I'm writing my comprehensive exams right now. And I'm beginning with that story that my 11-year-old son asked me, Mommy, what is the human element? Uh -huh. and, and I wanted to say to him, I wanted to paint a pretty picture. Well, baby, it's love and compassion and creativity. But it's also hate and evil and destruction. And I don't think we cannot hold both of those things if we're going to speak prophetically about the situation that is in front of us. So yeah, I would absolutely speak to it. What would I say? I think there's a time when we have to look beyond our, our partisanship, look beyond our, our tribal commitment to left, right, Republican, Democrat, and try to see what is good. Um, there's a saying, I love this movie, Wonder. It's a kid's movie about a little boy with a disfigured face and he goes to school for the first time and how he's both teased and welcomed and how he navigates that. And um, his teacher says to him, their motto in the classroom is, um, if you have a choice between what is right and what is kind, always choose kind. Mm. And I think we have an integrity and kindness issue at stake mm -hmm. right now. And, and I, I think that there is a clear unkindness surfacing in the rhetoric in this country and the enabled acts of violence in this country that is not kind. And it is very clearly coming from one direction and we must speak to that direction. I'm not saying that it wouldn't exist without this administration. I'm just saying it is very clearly coming from, from that right. direction. So when given the choice between what is right and what is kind, choose kind. You know, one of the things that so strongly appealed to me about Jackie Lewis when I first heard her at a Richard Orr conference, um, well, she took a stand. Mm -hmm. She took mm -hmm. a strong stand, and there were people in the audience who took issue with that. I bet. Some got up and left. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The vast majority applauded her, and that I see is helpful. Mm -hmm. That there are people mm -hmm. who are indeed taking stands about things that... Um, are really life-giving and important right now. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is what we mean by choosing sides, right? It, it, it is the commandment of, of choosing the side of the peacekeepers. <laughs> and um, what does that mean to choose the side of the peacekeepers? Because inevitably, as you say, someone is going to feel alienated. But how do we say, and this is also a very Buddhist and Christ-like uh, message, which is, um, I may disagree with you, and I love you anyway, but I am going to speak truth to it. If your views diminish, disable, or disempower someone else, right? And, and, this, the, and, and of course we can get relativistic about it and say, well, then isn't the left disempowering the right? Or isn't the progressive disempowering the conservative? But I think we have to think about power as an abuse of power. And when power is being abused, that needs to be called right. out. What is it that I, I just read in, um, I think in Martin Luther King's Where Do We Go From Here about power and love. Love without power is sentimental. It's just nostalgic and self-indulgent. Mm -hmm. But power without love is brutal. And where is that sweet spot where we have powerful love? And I don't think that what is happening now is loving it all. Mm. It's powerful and it's tempting and it creates, and many who have felt disenfranchised or disemboldened over the last years, it creates a sense of belonging and that sense of belonging is important to speak to. Mm -hmm. All of us want to belong, but the abuse of power is more important to speak to. Where else can we find belonging that is powerfully loving, not just power. Mm -hmm. So we've got to create new spaces for belonging. And if churches want to be part of that, they have to speak mm -hmm. to that abuse of power. Well, a lot of churches, um, organized religion, have a great deal of difficulty doing this. Mm -hmm. because there is always the risk of the institution saying something that offends people who pay for the institution to keep running. Yeah. I remember, and the man who first, uh, you've heard me use this line before, uh, the man who first said it to me was Carlisle Marnie, one of my really beloved teachers, and Marnie said, uh, remember, there are two things you cannot ever talk about in church. <laughs> First is politics. Politics. <laughs> and, and then religion. the second is religion. <laughs> and so he said, the only way that you can really be prophetic in a church setting is to take the role of a prophet. If you're willing to remember that prophets could not spend the night with the people. Mm. Only chaplains can do that. Chaplains can pastor and to heal and they can hold hands and sit through this dark, scary night, but prophet comes in to speak sometimes to the very issues that the church does not want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. My friend uh, Casey would say, when people get upset, it means you got in their kitchen. <laughs> I don't know exactly what that means, but I like it. Yeah, it's like you just kind of maybe you put the cups where the 
plates go or where the knife the knives where the spatula goes you know but but this sort of disruption disruption is a necessary part of growth and it is probably the hardest part because who doesn't want to be content who doesn't want to ride along on a smooth sailing day you know all of us but but frankel frankel talks about that in his book too right is that is this um that part of finding meaning is trusting that suffering has meaning and it is often our clamoring for just happiness that i that that we that that causes us to bypass the meaning in suffering and as you say we have this moral obligation to be happy right and it's not i, I you know there's that line in harry potter <laughs> that they're learning how to read tea leaves and uh Ron and Harry are terrible at it. And so they're kind of just making things up. And Ron says, I think it says you're going to suffer, but you're going to be happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and um, you know, so that's not the point either. It's just to say, to trust that in this unfolding, suffering and despair is also part of it. Um, and that is... Uh, that's hard for many of us. So many of us cause our suffering by trying to run away from it. The um, story that I'm sure you know of the princess and the pea. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> so in Zero Theology, he begins the book by telling that story. Uh -huh. And we have used organized religion to construct multitudes of mattresses to protect mm, us mm. from the pea. Yeah. And the pea is both absolute and circumstantial grief. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say that the grief, I mean, that's what I think if I could say what, what could a church community provide or a religious community to provide? It's like places to hold the grief, um, which requires a certain kind of dexterity and skill to be able to hold the grief of what we want to, might want to say both sides, right? Those who get agitated and those who are agitators. Um, and yeah. Holding grief is, I think, a big part of growth. Specifically, I want to say um, white American growth right now. Holding grief and discomfort and allowing those disruptions to happen. The reason I said that I thought that what, what we needed was had to do with compassion is mm -hmm. that, um, for one thing, we're in, we're in the National Week of Compassion right now. Good point. And, um, so the Charter for Compassion is being read three times a day, every day by Charter of Compassion Houston online. I'll be one of the readers on Friday. Oh, and um, yeah. I'm convinced, I keep coming back to it, that we need education in being able to see each other as just like ourselves. Mm-hmm. We could do mm -hmm. that. We wouldn't demean each other. Mm -hmm. 
we've got a long way to go. To stand in our nakedness, just like Frankel said, and to see another's nakedness. So vulnerable. Um, my beautiful bride and I started watching last night and had to stop because we ran out of gas. But I recorded the rest of it, which we'll finish watching tonight, a documentary that was on PBS called Driving While Black. <laughs> and uh, it's the story of America's love affair with the automobile and the road and how that love affair did not have an easy time being fulfilled for Black people because when they got in automobiles and began to travel, there were so few places where they could stop and eat and or spend the night. You know about the Green I Book, do. right? And, and mm -hmm. it, the Green Book is alluded to in this documentary and I saw the movie as well. I thought the movie was great. And of course it was romanticized and fictionalized, but the Green Book and the Green Book experience were real things. And, you know, mm -hmm. Jim Crow was a real experience for people. I remember growing up yeah. in the Jim Crow South in Tennessee and going to McClellan's, which is a dime store, five and ten cent store, they used to call them, and noticing that the colored water fountain was so much cleaner than the white water fountain. Mm -hmm. And my mm -hmm. mother had told me when I asked about why there were two water fountains, she said to me, well, it's because colored people are so much dirtier than we are. Mm -hmm. And I remember later reading Molly Ivins saying, when you first discover that they have lied to you about race, <laughs> you begin to realize they have lied to you about all sorts of things. Oh, yeah. And that's a painful individuation right yeah. there. Whether it's individuation from an aspect of our culture, of our family, of our right. tribe. Right. That's it's it painful because it means if you if you leave that, you go, oh, shoot, where do I stand? And that's um, again, you know, we're, we're suddenly naked and <laughs> standing alone. And that is uh, that's vulnerable. I will say in regards to the uh, the title of a documentary, Driving While Black, you know, those that have you is seen it? Um, I have not. I've heard of it. But um We'd like to think that that's a thing of the past. It is not. Uh, my nine-year-old son asked me the other day when we were running errands in the car, Mommy, what advice would you give me if I got stopped by a cop? Uh-oh. Mm -hmm. And we've had this conversation with our kids already before, you know, each kind of new time it comes up. But um, it's a painful conversation to have, to say, well, son, keep your hands on the wheel and you don't move them. What if my ankle itches? Don't scratch it. What if I have to reach for something? Don't reach for it without telling someone exactly what you're doing and where you're going. Keep your, keep your license on the desk or keep your wallet on the dashboard. You know, I mean, it's like that reality, sadly, despite our laws supposedly having changed, that reality is one that still feels true for many, especially black boys and men in America. Mm. He's nine. He's nine. 
Mm. Shouldn't have to carry that weight. Shouldn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So compassion is the key. And the way that we get there is through religious and spiritual education. We have to raise both religious literacy and spiritual literacy in people. Mm -hmm. And I think prepare people to be able to step outside the matrix enough to experience and, and be supported in experiencing that if you go the compassionate route, initially you're going to experience that you're in quite a cognitive minority. Mm -hmm. there, there, there are growing groups of people who are establishing um, practices and practice groups that you can participate in and uh, feel supported mm -hmm. in your newfound life. Yeah. And do that. You, you, you kind of like have to unbelong to find new centers of belonging, I think. Uh, yeah. You could do something radical like start attending online ordinary life. Uh, yeah, we'd love to have you. <laughs> that would be a thing. And the water's fine. <laughs> if you've not done so, register for Jackie Lewis. Yes. Yeah. This coming Saturday at 9.30. It's free. Mm -hmm. And um, if, you, if you get the link, if you register and sign up and you go to it and stay the first 10 minutes, I promise you, you'll stick it out and stay there. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Okay. Okay, see ya on Saturday.